0: Two generations of trickle-down exploitation, three generations of broken civil rights promises. We don't like admitting these things as a people, but the body knows. The body keeps score. The body politic announces the score.
1: Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'll be sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode, social distancing may be drawing to a close, but that doesn't mean folks are eager to come together just yet. Feelings of anxiousness and disconnection still persist. The potential unity among Americans involving civil civic discourse continues to prove a bumpy road, to say the least. But according to the speakers in this talk, it's a journey still worth committing to, having faith in, and suffering through together. Civic Saturday is an event created by Eric Liu and Janae Kane, following the pattern of traditional faith gatherings by fostering fellowship and a shared faith in discourse. From readings of a civic text to poetry and a civic sermon, the gathering continues its tradition of coming together and reckoning perspectives and truths to help build the community's civic muscles. The focus of this event grapples with lingering effects of COVID by confronting and processing a collective grief this event featured poetry from Seattle Civic Poet, Jordan Imani Keith, and music from Olivia Brownlee. Author and former speechwriter in the Clinton administration, Eric Liu, delivered the Civic Sermon. This hybrid virtual in-person event was presented by Town Hall Seattle on August 7th.
2: This is so fun. Wow. Welcome to Civic Saturday, uh, August 2021. Thank you, Ware, for that uh, fantastic introduction. We are so happy to be back at Town Hall for this first in-person hybrid live stream experimentation Civic Saturday. Thank you so much for being here. Um, as we are said, my name is Kayla DeMonte. I am the Managing Director at Citizen University and it is so wonderful to be here with you all this morning um, knowing we've got people who uh, made their way uh, to to downtown Seattle, who are watching um, at home maybe in Seattle and from elsewhere across the country, so thank you. Uh, I will admit, when we put this date on the calendar about eight weeks ago, we were thinking, yes, this is going to be a joyful, celebratory <laughs> moment back in person. Um, and, of course, it still is that. Um, but I think, you know, we are attuned to the reality of this moment, um, that along with the joy of being here together, um, we are still making our way through uncertainty and frustration and figuring out what comes next Uh, and these are the moments that civic saturday was created for to gather together to connect with each other both to reflect on the joy and the heartache to fortify each other and to figure out how we're going to move forward powerfully responsibly collectively from this moment As many of you know, we started Civic Saturdays right here in Seattle, Um, and since then, we've trained over 120 people from all over the country who have raised their hands to say yes, to say yes. We want to bring this to our communities as well. Hopefully, many of them are watching our Civic Saturday fellows um, from around the nation. We'll be training three dozen more people this fall, more to come after that, Um, and so you are part of a movement here that we started um, right here in our hometown city. This idea of gathering together to reflect on and commit to the civic health of our communities, to commit to our role as citizens, to commit to doing that in the company of others, it's a little bit different. If you're new here today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, We always encourage people to bring others along um, because it's really being here and experiencing this that is um, part of understanding why these are so special and important. Um, But hopefully you're here because like many others who have joined in for Civic Saturday, you recognize the power and the necessity of this type of space, especially now. So here's what we're gonna do together today. We're gonna hear some poetry from Jordan Amani Keith. We're gonna be led in song by Olivia Brownlee. We're gonna hear a few community members share pieces of civic scripture. Uh, we'll get a chance to connect with each other, uh, and we'll hear a civic sermon from Eric Liu. Um, a couple of final things before we kick things off, I wanna again just thank Town Hall, a wonderful partner for so many years for uh, being our, the place that we, we return to here in person. If you haven't found them yet, we also have some beautiful artwork posters from our friends at Amplifier. Um, Those are free for you to take. um, So please, uh, before you go today, grab a poster on your way out. And I also just wanted to share a message from Janae, Janae Kane, who's the co-founder of Citizen University. She so wished that she could be here with us today. Um, as some of you know, she has uh, been making her way through a tough bout of lymphoma over the past year, but is so happy to report that she is in remission. She is doing great. Um We love you, Janae. So she is not able to get vaccinated yet, which is why she is not here, but she is watching from home. She is sending her love, and hopefully it won't be too long till she can join us again in person. So before um, I introduce our wonderful poet for today, just want to take a moment for us to ground ourselves here. Go ahead, if you feel comfortable putting your feet on the floor, feeling the weight in your seat. Go ahead and close your eyes. We're just going to take a couple of masked, deep breaths together. So breath in and out. Breath in and out. Thank you so much. It is now my pleasure to introduce Jordan Amani Keith, who will be our poet for today's gathering.
3: That's very strange to see you and not see you because there's so much light. (laughs) Um, I need to hold silence for a second. I'm really thankful to be here. I am Seattle Civic Poet, 2019 to 2022. I have a third term, partly because, well, primarily because of COVID. Normally I serve two terms and the role of the civic poet is to engage people so to be here and to be invited to be here is, is um, it full circle and I'm thankful to be in public to be standing and to seeing you all um, as many of us have, have gone through so much uh, so with keeping in mind You're here. What we see in the dark is light. How did you end up here between my fingers? A year like water in my hand like rain. One bead waiting on an autumn leaf resisting the fall. Isn't that it? Each of us? braced against a wind that hasn't stopped blowing. A woman who wants you to know how old she is, how long she's been waiting to thread the sky with this needle. 2020 came in with a wind, blowing out candles so we can see in the dark. At camp, we'd sit in the smell of cedars, Listening to the night, we'd crunch the white lifesavers to watch the evergreen spark. Oh, see, can you say what your eyes taste in the dark? Fireworks between your teeth, each part of you trembling with the celebration of cold wind survivors. I came from a people whose ancestors tried on New Year's Eve to put it aside. We worried each time what the next day would bring. Would we awake with our family and kin? 2020 came in with a wind. 2020's been blowing ever since. My neighbors are unknown friends who in the beginning of loneliness thawed. Seattle melted into the streets with hellos and how are you's that people really meant. Perhaps the distance like improv, saxophones and protests made us a song walking. 2020 came in with a wind. 2020's been blowing ever since. Like leaves we are, orange, dancing, holding the hand of rain. Rising from our knees of smoke, saying, 2021, here we are. Becoming, that is what we do. Bust and boom, 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 boom. 2021, we are ready to dance. Thank you.
2: Jordan, thank you. Wow, that was so powerful. I could feel that imagery of being in Seattle over the past year and now. Thank you. Um, and now I am very excited to welcome um, our musician uh, for today, Olivia Brandley, to lead us in song.
4: It's a little odd, isn't it? <laughs> to be in a room full of people with the proposition of singing together. So I'm really grateful that Kayla did a little breathing with us earlier. I'm going to take it one step further. If you feel comfortable, why don't you go ahead and stand up? Let's get all of that energy flowing up through your feet, out the top of your head, and out into the room so we all know we're all here. Go ahead and take a deep breath. And then you let it out on a new. That's the sound of people singing together I don't know how much you did this even before COVID But we're doing it today, hallelujah Go ahead and sing and Ooh, yeah, you can feel that low note Getting down into the earth down in there Feels really good And just for fun, let's do an ooh getting into this mid-range, into the nailing cavity, go ahead and make a really ugly sound. Yeah, we love it. And just for fun, let's go, uh, yeah. Whenever you're cheering at an arena concert, you get way higher than this, so don't think you can't sing out there, because we go, woo-hoo! Can I I get a woohoo? Oh, gosh, I love it. This is kind of a fancy song, but we're going to do it our way. Whatever comes out is how we sing it. When the night has come and the land is dark The only light we'll see Doing a little echo. Let's try that. I'll do Win the Night and you sing it after me. When the night, when the night has come, has come and the land is dark. I don't know how to do that. And the moon and the moon is the only, the only light we'll see. Nice. No, I won't be afraid. No, I won't shed a tear just as long as you stand stand by me together so darling darling stand by me oh stand by me oh stand stand by me stand by me I know that we're just kind of a smallish gathering. I mean, large for COVID, but smallish for regular times. But there, we used to do a thing when we really got into a song. We would like either put our hands together really quick. Have you ever done that before? Try that. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I love it. So darling, darling. Stand by me. Stand by me. Big finish. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. We'll work on that. <laughs> nice job,
2: guys. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I think I felt every emotion possible in the last two minutes. That was wonderful. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you to everyone. That was beautiful. Mm. All right. Uh, what I'd love to do now um, is we are going to have Eric Lou come on stage uh, to give his civic sermon. And before that, we're going to invite two community members, Emily and Gabe, uh, to come up and read us two pieces of civic scripture.
5: Hi, Gettysburg Address, President Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, November 19th, 1963. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth.
6: James Baldwin, from The Fire Next Time, published 1963. Life is tragic, simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably, inexorably rises and sets. And one day, for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we sacrifice all the beauty of our lives We'll imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny deny the fact of death, the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible for life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying darkness from which we come and to which we shall return.
0: Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Gabe. Uh, Boy, those selections, but also just the spirit that you both brought to them. Uh, Like the spirit with which Olivia led us in song, the spirit that Jordan, Seattle's civic poet, brought to Our reconnecting with the poetry of community, Uh, but most of all, the spirit of all of you who have chosen to show up today. It is just an incredible gift to be here and to be together today. I want to thank again Town Hall Seattle uh, for holding us, hosting us, uh, for being the embodiment of what. means to live in community. Uh, I want to thank our remarkable team at Citizen University. You've met Kayla, uh, you may have met coming in, Tanem, Natalie, uh, others on our team who aren't here today. Um, But I again just want to thank you who have come into this room and those of you who are joining us online for this first ever hybrid Civic Saturday. As Kayla said, It's so much at once. It's so much to feel, to be gathered in person, yet staying masked, distanced, limited in numbers on purpose, while gathering virtually at the same time. It's joy and anxiety, relief and stress all at once. And so, again, let's just be here together and begin by doing the thing that this virus imperils most and takes away first. Let us breathe. Quietly, peacefully, together, uncoordinated. Let us just breathe and look around at each other as we breathe. See each other. Face the times and one another. I hope as you do so, as we've been spending this morning together, I hope you feel something like what I feel. I hope, actually, that you feel anything at all. Because, let's be honest, one secondary somatic consequence of this pandemic is that it works like a numbing agent. We grow increasingly numb to the problems that persist in every part of our society, numb to the new surge of cases and death in other places, numb to the dysfunction of national politics, numb to the failures of local politicians numb to disinformation and misinformation online. The nerves of the body politic are dulled. Part of it, of course, is simple fatigue. But I believe something deeper is going on. The dissipation of spirit that occurs when grief and pain go unacknowledged and unrecognized. Acknowledgement and recognition are the amino acids of civic life, the sticky stuff that allows bonds of trust and affection to form, that allows the proteins of respect and dignity to emerge, feeding new compounds that give rise to a complex, adaptive, self-governing system. I feel you. I see you. Take out I feel you and I see you, and the body politic degenerates rapidly into a mass of putrid mush. It degenerates into something quite like what we're seeing all across the land today. Let us then acknowledge and recognize our common grief. Not all of us have lost someone to COVID, but all of us have lost something a job, a home, a sense of belonging, a feeling of being fully human. What have you lost? What have we lost? After someone we love dies, we might yearn for the past. But what we grieve is the future, a shared future that can no longer be. To dampen the ache of that grief, or to escape it altogether, we often turn our gaze backward. My mother died this March of cancer. I drive over to her condo a few minutes away, where she spent her last year and a half. I water the plants that she had selected for her garden, the ground rose and the heather, the tall grasses and the tree peony that blossomed soon after she passed. After a while, I come in and sit across from her comfy green chair in the corner, and I recreate the small sensations of care and fleeting contentment, the micro routines of daily living that we made and tried to sustain as her body weakened. After a while, still sitting there, I finally exit the realm of memory and come face to face again with a future that does not include her. Then it is time to get on with my day. What an American thing to think. Places to be, meetings to, meetings to go to. But getting on and moving on, it's not something we simply get to do by saying it's time. It's something we earn by putting in the time. Our country today is awash in unanswered, festering grief. What have we lost? Too much to count, yet too much not to account for. Among the many ways we've been failed by our leaders during the pandemic, elected leaders, technocrats, business chiefs, people of faith, you name it, perhaps the most damning, is how they have failed to lead us in grief. Well, as Ella Baker said, and I always quote, strong people don't need strong leaders. So let's grieve like a strong people. Let's name our pain and sadness. And then, after an interval, however short or long, let's face this future full of absences lest we fall too much in love with grief. The poet Ada Limon writes in her collection, The Carrying, funny thing about grief, its hold is so bright and determined, like a flame, like something almost worth living for. When I came upon that line, it tempered some of my disgust with so many of my fellow Americans in this latest wave of COVID. It gave me a dose of compassion for those whose lives have been so suffused by loss and the foreshortening of a future, not just by the pandemic, but by other invisible forces that have worked to shrink their lives over the last two generations, the offshoring of jobs and the redlining of cities, the winner-take-all economy that makes losers of most and hoarders of the rest. I felt for, I felt with, those whose lives have been compacted like trash into cubes of scrap, such that all they want is the life-affirming nihilism of now, the taste of transcendence that arises when you give yourself over completely to the feeling that risk and danger matter no more. It is a grief, as Limon says, almost worth living for, perhaps even worth dying for. That was some of those lost people who climbed into the Capitol on January 6th. That is the young people shooting each other a few blocks from here for no good reason other than it makes them feel powerful. That is the people whose painkillers killed them. That is the people doing a slow-motion suicide dance called deliberate non-vaccination. 616,000 souls. That 616,000 is not, as some would like to convince themselves, the number of people who would have died anyway from the flu or whatever, it contains over 300,000 excess deaths. Now, we've all gotten accustomed to the clinical language of public health and the medical establishment, so we don't flinch anymore at terms like excess deaths. But we should flinch. We should recoil in horror. 600,000, 300,000. These are civil war scale numbers. End the pandemic today, and we'd still have to ask, how many excess deaths shall we now tolerate in, quote, normal times? Are the 20,000 people who die a year from gun violence excess or to be expected? The thousands who die every year of undernourishment, of overheating from the flooding that our broiling, churning climate begets, are they excess deaths or to be expected? We as Americans do not reckon with death, which means we do not reckon with life. We are scared to live honestly. We take refuge in big lies and little liars. Baldwin again. It seems to me, he said, that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide indeed to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. That's real talk. To confront with passion the conundrum of life is to face our fear. Fear of loss? We will lose all that we love, including our lives. Fear of contamination? We are contaminated from the start. Fear of being wrong? We are always at least a little wrong. Fear of being dominated? We already are dominated, imprisoned precisely by such fears. Lately, the turning of the generations has been on my mind and my heart. That's not just because my mother is gone now. It's because we are forced today to confront the generational scale of our problems, the generational imperative of racial justice and injustice, the generational crisis of climate change, the generational trauma of this pandemic, the generational conflict pitting boomers against Millennials, against Gen Z, and always somehow forgetting my generation, Gen X. (laughs) Hello, we're here, Generation X. So today I want to name three generational dynamics for us to confront in this time of reckoning and grief. Degeneration, regeneration, and cogeneration. Degeneration. Our first piece of civic scripture today came from Lincoln. And if we scrape off, as Emily helped us to do, the half-conscious habit of hearing or reciting the Gettysburg Address, we hear and see anew that it was an argument about the purposes of collective grief. Do we sorrow? Do we hallow? So that those who lie buried will not have suffered and died in vain? That's what President Lincoln said. And it is the cliche we buff and bring out for display at every funeral and eulogy. But I think we are more self-centered than that. We sorrow and we hallow so that our own suffering will not be in vain. So that our loss becomes less intolerable and perhaps even somehow meaningful. The historian Drew Gilpin Faust wrote a book in 2008 called This Republic of Suffering about how a national culture of death arose from the unprecedented scale of carnage during the Civil War. That culture centered on the verbs that are her chapter titles in the book. Killing, dying, burying, naming, believing, doubting, numbering. The culture emerged as all these acts became nationalized, ritualized, industrialized, Death at that scale birthed a new nation. And as death became mechanized, so did systems and habits of accounting, both in the actuarial sense and in the moral sense. It's the believing and doubting chapters of Faust's book that intrigued me most. In that time, faith was tested, faith in God and faith in the union. Out of that time came movements and philosophical schools as divergent as the transcendentalists, and the pragmatists, people who came to mistrust God and ideals and the the promise of providential purpose, and who decided to trust only their own hearts or only the evidence of their own eyes. Yet in the immediate aftermath of battle, Lincoln in that address insisted that there was providential purpose to be made out of the carnage, anchored not to individual fulfillment, but to collective purpose. From the fields of shattered, unburied bones and inky, dried gristle would be reborn something deep and durable. Government by the people, for the people, of the people. So what about us now? What of this republic of suffering? The age of COVID is a petty, play-acted civil war setting brother against brother and sister against sister, sending people to actual deaths. But this civil war has no purpose. It is idiotic in the original Greek sense of only of itself. It is not in service of government by, for, of the people. It is a self-indulgence of a people with no self-control, taken to self-destructive extremes. I don't mean just those Americans Whose obstinacy or ideology keeps them from getting vaccinated, or those bikers rolling right now into South Dakota for their Super motorcycle party. I mean also the idiocy of unions resisting vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. I mean the idiocy of corporations requiring vaccinations for white collar managers, but not for the frontline wage earners who are most rapidly infecting each other. I mean the idiocy of thinking that freedom is possible without responsibility. The numbers do not lie. 616,000 Americans, 500 more today, 20 more while we've been sitting here. So much death, so much suffering, and so little grown up facing facts. We Americans respond to this massive death in ways that befit a mass popular culture made out of mashed-up pieces of leftover make-believe. We pretend. We think magically. We wish upon the star of our narcissism. Before we fail to face the facts of COVID, we fail to face the facts of 9-11. And in four weeks, we will make a show of commemorating 20 years since that terrible bright morning. And yet, we'll make no effort to say how little we have to show for 20 years of war of undeclared war. We will not face the fact that while 1% of Americans fought those 20 years of war, a compensatory militarization of everything else took root in our society, from police departments, to MLB games, to SUV design, to video games and fashion, and to our entire politics. We aren't facing the fact that it's not just right-wing insurrectionists who feed secession and disunion. It's many young people on the left who feel little attachment to this country. It's complacent people of wealth who have padded their privilege during the pandemic and want just a little more cushion between them and everyone else. We've had one generation of war, two generations of trickle-down exploitation, three generations of broken civil rights promises. We don't like admitting these things as a people, but the body knows. The body keeps score the body politic announces the score. We are the living definition of degeneracy and decay. But life teaches us that degeneration is also the precursor to renewal. From decay and decomposition comes the new garden. And so let me speak now of regeneration. When right-wing activists mobilized this summer to keep critical race theory from being taught in schools, my mind went not to their bad faith fear-mongering or to the tenets of CRT itself. My mind went to the people who bought what those activists were selling. What do they fear? Do they fear that they will lose their children? That kids in red states will be won over by Marxist POC social social justice warriors? That their kids might be indoctrinated upon contact with other worldviews? That white children will stop loving their parents if the parents admit there is even an iota of truth to the proposition that for most of this country's history, our institutions have been tilted to advantage white people? Do they think their children will be made to hate them and can be made to hate them so easily? What that fear reveals about the elders is a brittleness, a fragility, a lack of confidence in their children's ability to discern and in their own ability to discern, social insecurity and status anxiety. But now, with curiosity rather than judgment, ask yourself this, how much does such brittleness lack of cultural confidence, insecurity, and status anxiety drive the excesses of your part of the ideological spectrum. If your reflex is to say not at all, because to concede an iota of of plausibility to that proposition would put racists and anti-racists on the same moral plane, then you are evading James Baldwin's challenge to live complexly. Regeneration begins with inviting each other to see and say what they are scared of, what we are scared of. It begins with love, a civic love that is not naive about our degeneracy and its causes, but is not so cynical as to lock ourselves into degeneracy. This is something that I think the younger generation is better at than their elders, than I am. Consider how the teammates of the U.S. gymnast Simone Biles responded when she said she could not continue in the Olympics. They cried at first because they were scared. It's scary to see the person you depend on say that they're scared and unable to go on. But that moment is the beginning of adulthood. Biles had to separate to protect herself. Her teammates chose by instinct to love her to surround and support her, to call her decision courageous. I admit, I had a different first reaction, one of disbelief that Biles was letting down her teammates like that. But then I learned as I watched these young people, the rest of the team, midstream still in competition, didn't have the luxury of a pause or a breath. They regrouped and rearranged themselves and competed. And when it was over, they said they had won that silver medal by which they meant they had truly earned it because the person who usually carried them wasn't able to. The U.S. women's gymnastics team reconstituted itself and regenerated, converting loss into a triumph. Can the team we call the United States do the same? It's hard to imagine today, but imagination is exactly what's required in the work of regeneration. I saw a documentary the other night about hallucinogenic mushrooms. This is not research for anything. It was just on. on. And how in managed doses, these magic mushrooms can help neurons regenerate in Alzheimer's patients. Connections once severed are being made anew in these aging brains. What is the body politics version of a psilocybin mushroom dose? so that we can make connections that our collective mind has stopped making between left brain and right. I'll tell you what it is. Friendship born of shared suffering. My friend Lennon Flowers runs a nonprofit called The Dinner Party, which gathers people in their 20s and 30s who have experienced the death of a loved one. At the top of their website, it says right there, we know what it's like to lose someone, and we aren't afraid to talk about it. And they invite people to find friends and join dinners organized to help people talk about it. And these friends are strangers. They're people who've come in search of the same thing. These gatherings used to be in person, and of course, they've been virtual during this time. And like Civic Saturdays themselves, which had to make that transition, they still work because they are a form of invitation like this has been a form of invitation that strangers, and especially grieving strangers, need. Invitation, so simple, so welcome, so rare. I have such appreciation for the institution of hospice, not only because the nurses and social workers did such a kind, loving job of attending to my mom, but because they were equally loving and supportive toward me. In the days before the end, one social worker told me, after a month, you should expect a call from us. We will offer you three grief counseling sessions. And about a month later, I got that invitation, and I accepted it. That led to deeper friendships, not with the counselor, who by policy could not counsel me any further, but with my own friends, with neighbors, colleagues, with whom now I could share some of what I had learned, learned from this sadness. How few Americans get this gift. Suffering is everywhere, and everywhere it is private, isolated, and tinged with shame. Shared suffering is not just suffering that happens to a lot of people simultaneously. It is suffering that is shared of, by, and for the people. The act of sharing builds bonds. It fosters hope. It gives calm, it feeds trust, it disarms fear, and detoxifies shame. And again, I say, so few Americans get this gift. Can we commit today to regenerating our community and our country by finding someone with whom to share suffering, theirs, yours, yours in common? All the better if it's someone with whom you differ in seemingly important ways. If we do, when we do, we will create something new. And that brings me to my last meditation on co-generation. Earlier this summer, Citizen University joined our friends at Encore.org in an online summit they called Co-Generate, dedicated to highlighting and teaching the art of bridging younger and older change makers. What made it distinctive was that it wasn't just intergenerational, getting youth and elders to meet and intersect. It was co-generational, inviting people to create and learn in both directions. I had the chance to be in public dialogue as part of this event with a legend of a changemaker named Angela Glover Blackwell. Some of you may know her. Sounds like you do. Founder of PolicyLink and one of the pioneering thought leaders and practitioners responsible for popularizing the idea and practice of racial equity. In our conversation, we spoke of the wisdom of the young and the creativity of the old, which is to say we flipped the script about the generations on purpose. We spoke about her youthful days in the black power movement in Oakland and her long career as an activist and about how many decades after her start, when she first heard the phrase, Black Lives Matter, it was, as she put it, a slap in the face of joy. She thrilled at this new way to force a jaded society to see the gap between ideal and reality. That juxtaposition of a slap in the face of joy, rude shock, and happy awakening is what can come when we co-generate. Angela told of the righteous certitude she had had as a young activist in the 1970s. She needed that certitude in part to gain clarity on the injustices of her time. But it also blocked her She later saw from connecting with older generations. Her mother had kept journals all her life, and after she died, Angela came upon one line in a journal that gave her pause. It said, Angie makes me feel ashamed to be middle class. For her mother's generation, attaining middle class security was no small feat, it needed to be honored. And honoring it might have been a way to bring that generation more fully into the impatient agenda of the youth. Cogeneration need not flow along a single axis and a single direction of power, from older to younger, from those with to those without. It can turn lines into circles of learning and creation. And so let me conclude today with a story of lineage and lines becoming circles. A few weeks ago, I read an anthology of journalism published as the Civil Rights Movement was unfolding. It included a long passage by the famed writer and professor Robert Penn Warren, a Tennessean describing his journeys in 1956 through the Deep South. He interviewed a range of people, but kept returning to the whites who knew better, yet could not buck the norm of segregation. The farthest they could go was to suggest that some elements, yeah, needed to be purged. But Warren asked them and asked the reader, who will purge whom? And what part of yourself will purge another part? Half a century after Warren wrote those words and asked those questions, one of his former pupils, David Milch, created one of the best television shows in history, Deadwood. Set in the Black Hills of South Dakota, During the gold rush, one generation after the Civil War, it is a Western with Shakespearean depth, unflinching depravity, and Baroque profanity. One of my favorite scenes is not profane, but sacred, in the same way that Civic Saturday means to be sacred, which is to say, civically. The scene is the funeral of Wild Bill Hickok, shot to death in a poker game. The boomtown's young minister gives a short eulogy, I'll share it with you. Mr. Hickok will lie beside two brothers. One he likely killed, the other he killed for certain, and he's been killed now in turn. So much blood. And on the battlefields of the Brothers' War, I saw more blood than this. And asked then as for the purpose and did not know. And don't know the purpose now. But know now to testify that not knowing, I believe. St. Paul tells us, by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Gentile, bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. He tells us, the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. They, much more those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, And those members of the body, which we think of as less honorable, are all necessary. He says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one to another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. I believe in God's purpose, not knowing it. I ask him, moving in me, to allow me to see his will. I ask him, moving in others, to allow them to see it. You do not need to be a believer in God to believe that this is one of the great statements of what it takes for people in pain set against one another in Darwinian struggle to co-generate the miracle called a self-governing community. It takes faith in each other. I met David Milch in 2005 on the set of Deadwood. I was interviewing him for my book about great life-changing mentors called Guiding Lights. I'd wanted to write about him as a teacher on the set of his show. He wanted to talk only about how Robert Penn Warren had formed his eye, his ear, his ethical core, his ability to see and seek contradiction and complication. Today, David Milch is in the grip of Alzheimer's. He has spoken publicly about what he is losing, how he still tries to work, how challenging, challenging it is to make the daily accommodations to the forgetting. And though I've not talked to him since that day on the set 16 years ago, I feel now obligated to sketch a line of dissent, to act as a steward of the ancient idea that Robert Penn Warren put into prose, that David Milch turned to poetry, and that each of us now is called to live out so that it does not perish from the earth. The idea that we are all of the body. We cannot excise one another. We cannot purge one another. We are responsible for one another. So we might as well create one another. Each of us, every one of us here, can tell a story of civic genealogy, lines of descent like this, and all the stories reduced to this. I see you. I feel you. I am kin to you. Thank you for bringing Civic Saturday back today to life in three dimensions, in living color and texture, across time and space, yet still rooted ultimately in place. That's how we got to do it. Let us commit today to live that way together every day. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Eric. All right. We did some breathing first, and then we did some singing together. Why don't you stand up again as you're willing and able? Remember your feet. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do a... it's fun with chords. There's more than one note, but it doesn't sound bad. So pick any one of these. Ooh, doo, doo, doo. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Mm. Isn't that nice? It's kind of nice how we can all be different. But it doesn't sound bad. Uh, this one. This one I see trees I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed day, dark sacred night, and I think to myself.
2: Thank you so much, Olivia, and everyone. Thank you, Eric. I just feel so moved from what I've heard today. Um, I hope you are all feeling that too, and you at home as well. The last couple things we are going to do today. We are going to have a moment to um, hear Jordan come up one more time and close us out in poetry. And then after that, we're going to be breaking into civic circles. Um, So for those who would like to stay, um, after Jordan um, shares her piece, um, we will share what the prompt is and have some time to connect with one another in conversation. For those watching at home, um, you should have received a zoom link. We will be doing virtual civic circles as well. Um, so hope you will join in for that. Um, today's gathering will be shared on civic Saturdays or uh, citizen university's YouTube page. If you'd like to watch again or share with others, we will also post a copy of Eric's civic sermon on our website. So, uh, in a moment. We will be gathering together and prior to that would love to invite Jordan Amani Keith one more time to come share poetry with us.
3: I really appreciate your words. Technically, when you come up to a podium, you're not supposed to say anything about whoever went before That's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. (laughs) Like you're still living in it, it is amazing. But for me, I'm gonna just say for me, so that's I can't, I broke a rule. Surprise! Um, I want to share this poem with you, uh, because, um, and I want to shout out to <laughs> my friend who I haven't seen in a long time, Rita, over there. I um write a lot about water, it's it's um become an obsession, which is a good thing, because, like, we'd all be dead. You know, there's that whole breath-of-water thing. But I work for Seattle Public Utilities, and I'm also... I wear two hats. I, I wear a lot of hats, but I wear... <laughs> I wear a hat as the Seattle Civic Poet, so I was asked to write a poem, and it happened to be the folks that asked me to write it were my employer also. And I... I uh, because what I do... What, I, what, I've, what I'm blessed to do and hope that we get to return to is to teach people about the Cedar River watershed the source of our drinking water and uh, there's only one other place I would live in the country because our water is so good and that's where my friend Norma over there a good old friend she's old, I mean my oldest friend <laughs> from New York <laughs> they have good water yeah I'm digging I gotta, I'm going to stop, thank you so this poem is called "One Water Zero Waste All People," And it's meant to bring us together uh, and leave you there with me. Three parts. Most seasons, Seattle hears voices that sound like rain drums singing, like raindrops drumming like sky, crying for the droplets. So much water races off the surface to the sound. So much soil covered by the endless roads like black band-aids painted with yellow and white lines covering the places where Earth has been hurt. Now the water's wounded too. All that runs off after another hundred year flood just five years after the last one. Salmon rush home, swim across rivers in the road like workers driving around closed highway signs to get to work on green rain gardens to be rain wise with you to sound like rain drums singing from the water to From the water at your tap to your garbage, from the rain on the roof to the streets, in the morning when the blue bin rumbles, in the day when you're walking on the streets, from the kitchen to the garden to the soil, from the roof to the runoff at your feet. SPU is the industry that's protecting one water from sky to the sea. Two. In the morning, when the blue bin rumbles, the sound is a check mark I call Tuesday. They descend from the thunder of their truck. Masked, they cross my driveway. Only now I realize how much like a deity carrying myth they are, carrying discarded bottles to Glass Mountain. Hands as swift as wings sort what we wish for from what actually is recyclable. (laughs) In the dayless days of quarantine, it is not the pale gray wisps in fuchsia sunsets that let me know the human world is okay. It is the morning, it is Tuesday, when the blue bin rumbles. Three, there is a city above the city beneath. We flush our toilets. People sleep in the street. Pipes are held from bursting. We wash ourselves, our towels, our dishes. Hands yank the choking clogs of what should not be flushed from the throat of the city. We work at home. In the midst of a pandemic, there is no heavy rain in summer, in the hour of our city, no combined sewage risk overflowing in the midst of tear-gassed dreams. But the vulnerabilities are seismic when inequity quakes, just as climb to earth from these storms, one water rises. Like sun on gathered rain, we shape the future. From the water at your tap to your garbage, from the rain on the roof in the streets, in the morning when the blue bin rumbles, in the day when you're resting on the streets, from the kitchen to the garden to the soil, from the runoff, from the roof to the runoff at our feet. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Um, Wow. Thank you for bringing us back to that realness, Jordan. Uh, We are now going to wrap up the formal part of the program and turn it over to Civic Circles. So wanted to say thank you so much again to Town Hall. Thank you, Jordan, Olivia, Emily and Gabe, Eric, the Citizen University team, Amplifier, take some posters home. Thank you to all of you here for coming here today, for watching.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Speakers Forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This hybrid virtual in-person event was presented by Town Hall Seattle on August 7th. It featured poetry from Seattle civic poet Jordan Imani Keith and music from Olivia Brownlee. Author and former Clinton administration speechwriter Eric Liu delivered the civic sermon. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon.